So, Nick Ryan, thank you very much for uh, joining us this morning for In Conversation. Pleasure to be here. Can you start by telling me just a little bit about your upbringing? Uh, very normal, very ordinary, happy childhood. Not Dublin, a, are you? Yeah, um, I was born in Dublin, moved around a little as a child, kind of, I think I was uh, lived on the north side for the first six months of my life, then moved kind of south side. Did a spell in Delgany when in my early early years, I think when I was about seven to ten, and then my parents moved back in okay. to uh, uh, South County, like near Dunleary there, oh, Corn- Cornell's Court. So lovely. anyway, for anyone who's interested, yeah, yeah. Uh, always loved, interested in film, and um, as a, as a kid, um, you know, we used to make. Actually, we started making films on tape. If that makes any sense, we'd, mm. we'd script these little. Um, ridiculous scenarios and we'd record them and put on special effects. I used to collect special effects records, BBC special effects, okay. sound effects records. And uh, we used to do these uh, ridiculously over-the-top epic um, disaster movie-style uh, radio pieces. And then we discovered the cine cameras that our folks had had in the 70s and started uh, making film versions of these. And when you say we, is that... Oh, well, my, my cousin is... Um, some people will know him as Robbie Ryan. He's a cinematographer, very good cinematographer now. And um, and uh, a group of uh, friends of ours and Robbie and myself would uh, get together in the summers and spend our um, summer days, when we were kids now, um, making these little movies. Okay. And Have you still got them? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. They're somewhere, yeah. I mean, and the the thing is, we used to post sync then because Super Eight wasn't there was no sa- sound on it, or maybe there was, but like, we didn't have the capability of doing. It. So we would, when we get the film back from the labs, and you'd you'd also shoot in sequence, so you'd shoot cut to cut because no, we didn't edit the films. We'd we'd actually work out where we need to be, okay. move to location, uh, and then <laughs> yeah, then we then we'd sit down and we'd um, uh, do an audio track to it. That we'd sync up and we'd play, and then we'd get everyone together, put up the big screen, press play, and watch it ten times in a row, and laugh ourselves silly at how stupid uh, this and was. And what age were you? Like, Probably old enough to be doing something more <laughs> uh, uh, practical. I was about fourteen, fifteen years okay. of age. You know what I mean? So okay. kind of, you know, around that time. Yeah, what about it? About eighty-five, eighty-six. So it's um, so, and out of that, then we kind of really enjoyed doing that. So, um, uh. I got a video camera, I got a Canon uh, Hi8, not even, yeah, was it even Hi8? Video 8 mm-hmm. camera, I think in 1987. And then we started making, you know, these kind of productions, um, which again, they, they, they carried on on that kind of scale. But it was, it was always, it was just a, a great sense of, of fun and doing it. And, uh, but then I went to art college uh, and to study, am I jumping ahead too much there? <laughs> Okay, the uh, I went to Dunleary, um, was it's now IADT I think, but it, it was Dunleary School of Art and Design back mm-hmm. in in eighty seven. Uh, I did a foundation year, and as much as I wanted to always make films, I thought, you know, in nineteen eighty seven, film wasn't a very. It didn't look like you actually had a major career path. It's, it's really hard, you know. You don't think outside the country. You don't think, well, I'm just going to go away and I'm going to go to somewhere that at that time I remember thinking. I better do something that can kind of give me uh, a career, if you will, and I studied design. Okay. But I always, you know, film was always there. But I think design is a good discipline to, uh, to, to study in conjunction with film because um, 
you know, what you didn't get in practical in Dunleary. And Dunleary was a really good practical film course. Robbie ended up, I think he, Robbie's two years younger than me, but he, he, he did the film course there. And obviously had a lot of very good friends, and we worked on the films for the filmmakers as well in Dunleary as the designers and worked on several films, actually. Um, but, you know, I studied design, uh, went out into the world. Uh, I think in 91 I, I graduated, and I started working for a TV production, a small production company in, in Dunleary, mainly cutting out maps of Ireland and putting in singing priests behind them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> which wasn't, uh, which didn't last very long. Um, uh, and I always, parallel to that, had an interest in computers and uh, in, in terms of graphics, the, the, the computer capability. On the, on the short films we used to make, um, I bought a, a, a system called a Genlock, which would allow you... It, it sounds so easy now because everything's so accessible with computers, but back then it was almost impossible. A Genlock allowed you to superimpose graphics on top, so video graphics on top of moving pictures. So right, okay. we could extend these epic films we were making with digital map paintings. I mean, they look dreadful now, but uh, there was a computer called an Amiga, a Commodore Amiga for, for the nerds out there who will remember this. And um, it even had some very rudimentary 3D applications, 3D programs. I just was fascinated in that whole world. I mean, it didn't, that the, in, in, in the late 80s, that computer graphics didn't exist until Terminator, until The Abyss, until Jurassic Park came along. Computer graphics were never even in, entertained in the film industry. Um, but I always thought it was an interesting area. So I, I kind of did a lot of that in, on the side. I, I trained myself up in the early 90s then in in 3D studio, and it wasn't even Max, uh, 3D software, and started doing a lot of animation work. And through that, started directing animated commercials and then so was it kind of a, a like natural yeah. easing from design into the film world, if you like? It was yeah, well, for me, yeah, I mean, I don't know how much of this you want to use, but like it's for, for me, it was, uh, for the first, the early part of the 90s, I worked in a, like a, a company called, was called CBT Systems, and I was doing computer-based training. So I was developing uh, the, 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 the visual look of their software, which became huge, actually. And I was only there for a very short time, really two years. It seemed like a long time at the time. And, I, and at the time, I was always progressing with 3D animation and, 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 and learning that and still, you know, doing a lot of photography and stuff and even even a bit of stuff on video. But editing wasn't accessible to you back then like the way it is now. You know, you needed edit suites and so on and so forth to do stuff of, of, of real consequence and meaning. Uh, and then in around 95, I, I kind of joined a group of guys and we set up a company called Image Now Films. Uh, and through that, we started. I started directing commercials. I did a bit of that. Actually, one of the first things I ever did was a live... It was live action elements. It was um, the, the, the title sequence for a program called the Classical World Series. Um, and I shot out this Americana-style baseball opening um, in Ardmore, on, on B stage in Ardmore, against a green screen. We'd sand, and then we built this whole... Uh, you know, American petrol station uh, in, in, with computer graphics, uh, and then I did identities for TG Cahar when they or T, T, Tina G as it was when it launched. I did all the opening events that ran for, for many that those live action. But to direct commercials in Ireland in the nineties, you needed to be in the, the in, in in SIP two in the union, and you needed to get sponsored by other directors. So I couldn't actually do live action commercials, or you would have you just you'd have been breaking union regulations. And, you know, I suppose for a lot of the time in the 90s, I was kind of uh, fine-tuning the craft of computer animation and learning a lot of that. But 
I got to a point where um, I felt I just wanted to, you know, I just that 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 love of being a filmmaker. You know, you're still in your twenties. You know what I mean? You've still got yeah. your life is mapped out in front of you. You think you know you're never going to get old, and <laughs> um, I think it was around time I was getting almost the, the, the millennium, the turn of the the millennium when I kind of went, I want to make films. I, this is what I'm doing. So I started um, pushing in towards. Uh, music videos and so I did, directed a couple of music videos for Bell X1 oh right okay um, uh, Pinball Machine and uh, I think it was the second was Man on Mirror first one I really enjoyed doing the boys were great the, 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 the guys really wanted to you know tell a story and that to me music videos then was it was a great way of telling stories because you could create this um, uh, just this tale that was set to the, the three minutes three and a half minutes of music uh, really enjoyed doing that the wonderful Donald Gilligan shot that for me I'm 16. I'm Dolly Man Strand, and I think in, in the basement of the the uh, what you call it, the Morrison Hotel, actually, if I remember rightly. Anyway, so once I started doing music videos, then I started directing commercials, and then commercials. Uh, uh, from there, started to you know I got this. Um, I, I worked with a, 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 another filmmaker here in Dublin. He worked with me along in, in Image Now called Rory Robinson, and. Um, Roy and myself, we just always used to, just used to talk about film and wanted to make these kind of films. But the kind of films we wanted to make, nobody was really making. We couldn't really get a huge amount of support, even from the film board at that time. And what kind of films were they? Um, they were not the kind of films that were being made. Like, so, I mean, ostensibly, I would say, um, kind of more science fiction or... You know, films that kind of alluded to something a little bit bigger, like yeah, they were like miniature versions of of, of 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 big feature films. But they were, you know, inherently grounded within story, and uh, but just pushing the boundaries a little bit. Other than, um, I, I found a lot of short films to be a little dour and a little bit kind of introspective and a bit, you know, institutional abuse or or, or suicide. And I just kind of went, you know. You know, my grounding and my love in, of film has always been very, very commercial. I mean, I grew up loving Star Wars and and ET and Blade Runner, Blade Runner later maybe, but um, you know, Back to the Future. Uh, you know, yeah. very commercial yeah. bent in, in 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 the approach to the films that I that I loved, and you know, I think you know we all grew, anyone who grew up in the eighties loved those films, even the Goonies and the, yes. the Lost Boys, and you know, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Some of them don't hold up as well now when you look back at them, but um, some of them do. My dad would still sit down and watch The Goonies. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love it. Um, yeah, but it's... Um, I did, yeah, I did watch it. a different tradition in Ireland. We come from a different perspective. We, but we do and we don't, and that's the thing. I, mean, I think everyone has that. I mean, I think it's always level that we know we're, we're much more literary and we're much more introspective. And, you know, I mean, do you want to take in the... Our past as a, as a, an example of, mm-hmm. of of the stories we want to tell, and you know what? At the end of the day, I think you know you you, you can twist yourself up in knots trying to trying to um, define what is the stories you want to tell. At the end of the day, when you make films, it's whatever reaches out, whatever whatever pushes through a page that reaches to you and says something to you. That's what that's what you're going to make, okay. you know. So then, your first short was. It wasn't the German. I've got the German. No, it was uh, a lonely sky. Um, I made that. But I, I produced a film for Rory called The Silent City, uh, and we put that together uh, in, in I think two thousand and four. And then the following year, I kind of went, "Hang on, you know, I want to do this for myself as well." So, like, you know, because Rory was directing that, uh, so I, I I wrote this. 
I think I've written it before, around that same time, in 2004, I'd sent it into the film board and it didn't. Again, I mean, I can understand on paper it sounded ridiculous anyway because it was ostensibly a film which was about a, a pilot trying to break the sound barrier and it had all these sequences of um, flying and, you know, uh, rocket planes and, you know, on, uh, I think, of the, the, the shortcuts budget at the time, maybe 50 or 60 grand or something. They probably thought, well, how the hell are you going to do that? So... Whether they didn't like the story or they didn't like, they didn't think it was feasible to do, didn't you know? So I, I you know, out, out of the background of that, um, I, I've been working with Seamus Byrne of Zanita Films as well. He he worked as a producer for me, um, with me in Image Now. So when I do the commercials, uh, I don't know if you know Seamus at all. Um, Seamus is great. I've been working with Seamus for many many years and. Um, we put together just um, uh, got a budget, got a little bit of money together from the company, and we made um, a lonely sky. We just went out to Ardmore, shot for three days. I had written the part very much in mind. Uh, I had this older guy, and I saw one day um, on, on the Sunday Times cover that Keir Delay, um, who I'd been a huge fan of, I'm a huge fan of 2001, Stanley Kubrick's 2001, and uh, Keir had played Dave Bowman. The uh, astronaut in 2001, and um, in my mind, probably this sounds absolute bullshit, but in my mind when I was writing it, I always saw it been very like, Dave, like an older Dave Bowman. And when I saw it here, I went, that that looks like Dave, that looks like Dave Bowman. And I went, that is, that's Keir Delay. Look at that. So I got in contact. He was over here in Ireland. He was doing a play uh, for the Red Kettle Theatre Company, and um, I sent him an email <laughs> and a script, and I said, hey, look, you know, if you're if if you're amenable, I'd love to make this film. We can put it together very quickly, and and he responded. He loved. It. He loved it. He loved it, you know. And um, came up and we did it, okay. you know. And uh, so that was the that was the beginning of that film. And, and there was about six months of visual effects work on that then, which I um, um, see. That's where my background came in handy with the three D. Uh, built the airplanes, built the environments, did the animation, did all the compositing, all the. You know, that's it's it's a great skill to have as a director to be able to to, to fall back on to be able to complete that movie. Okay. You know. Okay. Um, so then, jumping forward sure. to the summit, um, when how did you get involved with that? Yeah. Well. Um, well. I mean, whatever about Lonely Sky. I think that I did another film after called The German, German, which is a much, in my opinion, a much better film. Um, you know, again. Uh, that was supported by the Irish Film Board. Uh, I'd written a very simple script, which was a, a duel between two people. Okay. And um, again, it did have a lot of... It's got four and a half, five minutes of visual effects at the top of the opening. That sequence of the film is, a, is, is an aerial sequence. Um, uh, but I had managed to convince the Film Board at the meeting, because the only meet at, at the meeting, I think, was, it was Andrew Meehan, who was on the, on the board at the time, on the panel. And he kind of went, we love this story, but how are you going to do that opening thing? And I explained, look, and I showed him, that was great to have had a lonely sky in the bank. I said, well, see all that? That's, none of that's real. I will do that. And, you know, the budget for doing that will be zero because, you know. Because you can do it. Because I can do it, yeah. So do you, is there kind of a reticence in terms of special effects is from the Irish Film Board or from, uh, do, are we kind of afraid mm. of? At the time, maybe, yeah, because, I mean, there was a group of us kind of, uh, Doing films that were like uh, James Mather and and, and uh, Stephen St. Ledger had made a film called Pray Alone, I think, in two thousand and four, which again had huge amount of visual effects. That was maybe the first one of those to be finished, and it was hugely ambitious. Then Rory did Silent City, and we got some completion funding for that. And then 
um, when I did A Lonely Sky, they gave me the German. So there was a lot more people pushing in towards doing visual effects and films. I think the danger with that then is that, like you know, it obviously makes the uh, if you if you're not if you don't have the budget to do it, you're relying on favors. If you can't do it yourself, so you're pulling people in to do it, and it's a very difficult thing to ask somebody because it's very time intensive work, and you've got to lead by example. Uh, and in, sometimes some of these films don't get finished on time, and it probably frustrates the system a little. But you'd have to speak to the film board about that more than me. But uh, um. but the, the summit came about because I, I literally had just finished. Um, the German, it was kind of I, I think uh, the German played first at the at the Cork Film Festival in two thousand and eight, and I got a, I got a great response to it. I got I got signed to um, um, what was ICM uh, the Independent in the UK, and then UTA in 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 LA, who are the UTA are one of the largest talent agencies. Like they represent the Coen Brothers and Johnny Depp and Harrison Ford, and and it's wonderful. You think, hey, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is our, uh, uh, and at that point, I was thinking, like, you know, well, this is great. This is, you know, I'm going to go try and make a feature film of at whatever level. So you, you go and you do do a lot of meetings. But um, but in in August of 2008, uh, the events that are portrayed in the summit happened. And I remember them at the time. I remember hearing the news stories. I remember uh, genuinely not even knowing where K2 was. I always thought K2 was that. A mountain that's a, a trick question in pub quizzes which is you know what's the tallest mountain in the world and it's not Everest because it's this there's a mountain in Hawaii I can't mm-hmm. even think what the real name of it is now that is half submerged so it's right from, okay so, so it's yeah yeah so I always thought so anyway I always thought that's I always thought that was K2 I didn't know where K2 was um, I didn't know it was the second tallest mountain in the world um, I didn't know how difficult it was but I remember hearing the stories about Jerry McDonnell and it was um that he'd successfully summited and everyone was delighted and then the next day it was like oh there was been a big accident and that some of the climbers were stranded people didn't know where they were and then the third day was like you know uh, c- certain people had been thinking but you know Jer was missing and presumed dead and it was terribly terribly sad but you know it was just a, a story I'd, I, I'd heard and then a couple of weeks maybe six or eight weeks later um, as as things happen as things, this is how things happen in Ireland uh, Daryl Kavanagh who works with me in Image Now he was at a stag in the, in the west of Ireland and he met um, uh, a guy called Stephen O'Reilly who was a friend of Jer's, who had been um, to the South Pole with Jer in 2006 I believe and um, he told him about the story and he said oh I heard there was other things that happened on the mountain and uh, Daryl came in to, and on the Monday or the Tuesday or whatever and, and told me this and I went okay that sounds interesting but at the time again oh, I didn't know anything about mountains I hadn't really made any major documentary that made a couple of documentaries about the electric picnic that had screened here actually in the IFI and stuff mm-hmm. I did two or three of them but they were light and fluffy and heavily music focused you know yeah. and um, so I was going well what do I know about this uh, and then uh, Stephen knew that, um, that there was a climber who climbed on Everest with with um, Jer in 2003 called Pat Falvey and he brought Pat up to talk to us and Pat kind of explained the whole thing about mountains and um, you know, put it all in a very good context. I mean, I thought, that's really exciting. And but the one thing that stood out to me more than anything else was how bloody ludicrous this was. Why, why on earth would anybody put themselves in such danger? I think I think the statistic had been leveled at that point that for every four people who'd stood on the top of the mountain, that one had died trying to get there. And I went, that's worse than Russian roulette. Why would anybody do that? So, you know, I, I'm inherently seem to be drawn to stories about people doing extreme things. So I. 
uh, I, I've subsequently learned that I think but uh, it's that 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 reached out to me as I said to you earlier on you know some things sometimes reach out to you and at the time I remember thinking well I don't know what this is about really or or, or what what approach to to take to it uh, but very quickly we set up interviews with um, one of the survivors a Dutch climber called Wilco van Ruyen and we we went to Holland and we interviewed him and he was angry I remember in the interview um thinking he was looking for answers as much as we were looking for answers to the questions that we had uh, and really not been a climber I didn't have the massive technical aspect of understanding but I wanted to understand the emotional aspects of what it was like to be on the mountain why he did that why couldn't they find their way down I mean why can't you just go in the big footprint you left on the way up yeah. and he's like it's not that simple you know and he's getting you know he'd get angry and because you know who's this non-climber asking him questions Am I judging him? No, you know what I mean. But like to him, I'm, I'm, you know, they're very. He's very. He was very direct. You know, English isn't his first language either, so difficult. But I, I thought it was fascinating. I remember coming back from that, thinking like, "Wow, that's really interesting." And I felt really um, amazed at, at the hardship that they'd gone through and why they would put themselves through that. And then uh, that was in that was in October. It was only a couple of. That was only a matter of six or eight weeks after the actual accident. Wilco subsequently lost all his toes. He still had them at the time, heavily bandaged when we did that interview and then we brought Pemba Gelsi Sherpa who was key to this whole um, story in the summer we brought him from Kathmandu to uh, to Ireland and we went down to Kerry uh, and Pat had worked with obviously had climbed with uh, Pemba in 2003 so he he, he had that uh, connection to Pemba so Pemba came in and we spent a day uh, going through the team photographs on a big screen with a pointer trying to understand the geography of the mountain. I mean, it seems, so I, I see it in my head now, I can't close my eyes and I've seen it, but like at the time, trying to understand the routes and why people would go, why don't you go that way? And uh, Pemba went through everything. And then when we did the interview, what was interesting was, even though Pemba and Jer and Wilco had climbed on the same team on the same day on the, on the same mountain that morning, Pemba's stories, you know, at, at a point diverged from what Wilco had to say about the mountain. In what way? In the, it was contradictory in that, like, um, Wilco would have said things like, um, you know, well, we, you know, when the first climber fell, we kind of, everyone talked about it and we had a discussion and we decided what should we do. And he said, and we'd ask Pemba and Pemba said, yeah, we still have time. You can make the summit. We should continue. Whereas Pemba would clearly say when the first climber fell, everybody stayed silent. Nobody communicated with each other. And he felt psychologically unwell and that he didn't want to keep climbing. Now, I'm not saying he didn't say that, I'm not with the Wilco's line, that he didn't say, you will have time to reach the summit. But I think you've got a Dutch person speaking English to a Nepalese per- person speaking English. So communication, the only person who could actually speak English perfectly on the mountain that day as his first language was Jerry McDonald. But so that to me was interesting. And the reality there is that like um, what Pemba said is, you know that like obviously yeah you you can continue and and I asked but like I mean the one thing I always was like well, why did you continue if you felt sight you know he's very spiritual he felt the mountain had spoken and had taken a life uh, he didn't know the second life was going to go like they weren't aware of the second person to die somebody died before Jer yes oh yeah Jer was one of the last people last to die, to die. Uh, on, um, on the mountain um, on the on the way up yeah a, 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 a Serbian climber fell and um, his team went down so everyone kind of went well this team went down there's nothing we can do he, he, he stood up they all thought he was okay but he'd actually 
had a major head trauma. He stood up and fell over and was dead. And then subsequently a high-altitude porter, a Pakistani high-altitude porter, slipped while bringing that body down the mountain, and he slipped to his death. Now, the people above that weren't aware of the second death, and as they continued to the summit. But that's jumping far too far ahead. At that point, then I really realised, okay, now this is interesting because there is a completely different opinion as to why, why you know, they continued and what, what they should do. And I went, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the story, and then it became to me um, something that I had to tell. So was that your starting point? Because, you know, when you do a drama, the narrative kind of gives you a direction. But yeah, it's the o- it's it complete was, opposite. Yeah. yeah. See, documentaries, it's, it's, it's almost the complete opposite of film. Being that, you know, like, you know, in, with, <laughs> as is not always the case, you, your script is your blueprint, and that's why you follow that blueprint. Like, so you write, a, you, write, you write a brilliant script, and then you go make it. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> it never gets changed. It never gets rewritten. Yeah. yeah. That never happens, does it? <laughs> but um, but at least you know where you're You've going. You know the you know the points of where you need to get to. Exactly. Uh, with a documentary, it is the great unknown because, although I have to say quite early on, and, and I suppose one of the most important aspects, and again at that point, when I, when I interviewed Wilco, and then when we went to interview um, Pemba. It wasn't about Jerry McDonald. I mean, the ironic thing is everyone thinks, you know, I ended up making this film because of Jer- about Jerry McDonald because he was an Irish man. It's an Irish man making a film about an Irish climber. That was not the case at all. We didn't. We, we just thought that Jerry at that time had been an, another unfortunate casualty that he had he had um, he just didn't make it down the mountain. But what what Pamba told us about the radio. I mean, it's really complex to explain. That's why you should see the film. And hopefully, it, I don't know if we even explain it that clearly in the film. To be quite honest, because it's such a complex. Um, series of events um, but uh, when Pemba explained to us what had happened there was that light bulb moment of holy shit Jared had done something really extraordinary on the mountain and nobody knows about this and even to the point that when I was doing interviews some I think the last of the interviews we did were almost two years later I mean the, the interviews with Pemba and Wilco were in 2008 remember and <laughs> uh, the last interviews I did were just before we did the recreations in 2011, in, in January 2011. So that's like two and a bit years later. Mm-hmm. Um, when I spoke to Frederick Strang and I told them about what Jared did, they went, no, nah, he couldn't have done that. No, and I went, but, you know, I showed them photographic proof. People who were there weren't even aware of what had happened on that mountain. And that's, to me, the fascinating aspect. And, you know, subsequently I would learn from first-hand experience part and parcel why that was the case. Because you cannot factor in. It's one thing for us, you and me, to have a conversation here at sea level, but to 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 be in the in the ground that they're standing on above eight thousand meters, believe me, nothing makes sense. It's 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 a nightmare world, and uh, you know, I, I uh, Stephen O'Reilly, myself, subsequently in, in in July of two thousand eleven, went to Pakistan to film the mountain, uh, and I think we flew. I be I flew to in, in, I, I was filming with with in the, in the filming helicopter without oxygen which I did have, but I didn't use it because I was busy, uh, to 25,500 feet, which is 7,600 metres, which is just stupid. <laughs> so I know what, I mean, I got really hypoxic, so I, I, I felt firsthand uh, the, the effects. So it's not quite the same as because they would have climatized, but Our it's debilitating. Our quite apply in that No, it doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. Not, a lot of things make sense. You don't, it's not a place to be making decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, it really isn't, you know. At the, like when you, there were 
as you've explained, there were a massive amount of questions as to the exact circumstances as to Jerry died. Yeah. Was that a weight on you? Did you feel you needed to answer those questions? Was that? Uh, well, you know, the to a point, yeah, because I felt like what he had done was extraordinary because I'm not a climber, so I felt he was the person that all everybody would re, would like to think that they are. Yeah. To me, he was the moral center of this story. You know, he did what we all think we would do in that situation, but the reality has shown that that is not the case necessarily. And that is not to criticize. I don't I don't I don't criticize anyone else for 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 doing what they did on the mountain to survive that day. I don't think anybody willfully walked over anybody and left anybody behind. You know, Marco. I mean, Marco came under a lot of criticism at the time because of it was more because he kept changing his story, not because of what he did. He stopped with Jer for three hours that morning and did everything in his powers, along with Jer McDonald, to try and rescue those three climbers that were stricken there, trapped in the ropes. Um, and you know, he was exhausted. He was, you know, they'd spent a night in the open above eight thousand meters. It was a miracle that they survived that night alone, let alone try and enact a rescue on the side of a mountain, which is almost impossible. But something in Jer said, like they were descending and Jer stopped and he didn't really gone down a little bit and Jer stopped and, and went back up. And that's the last anyone ever saw him alive. And the reality is, I have a photograph of one of those people who were trapped, which means somebody freed, at least that one person. And that is the basis of everything that you have. you know. And that was one of the things that um, through someone like Frederick Strang, who... When I t- told him the story after the interview, he kind of went, well, you know, that didn't happen. Jared couldn't have rescued anybody. They all died on the mountain. I said, but what about the photograph? And he goes, what photograph? And I says, oh, you haven't seen that photograph. And I took out the picture, which was, it's in the film. It's a gruesome image. And I, you know, it was a decision I had to make to show it in the film because it's part of the evidence. And if you just say it exists but don't show it, you know, it's conspiracy theory bullshit. So the, the photograph... Um, is 100% identified by their costume is, was Jumik Bote and Pasang Bote and Jumik Bote um, was one of the climbers who had been trapped so he couldn't have got there unless he had, had walked the 200 metres to the point of the avalanche that eventually took his life and took Jerry's life uh, and when I showed that picture to, to Frederick he went how on earth is that possible where did you get that picture and I said Pemba took that picture after the avalanche and he was just gobsmacked and he went I had no idea and it changed his whole thinking and he'd written a book about this right. so okay. you know seven books have been written about it yeah and the thing is like yeah i mean I'm, it's when you get those moments when you can look somebody in the eye who had been there and i'm not to turn around and say that's not what happened you were there and i i'm, I'm telling you how it happened but to, for him you know it, it changed his opinion instantly about what had happened on the mountain and then you know you're right then you know you're not just it's not you know even if jer hadn't freed any of those climbers what he did was heroic on the mountain that day and you know I try and explain that to the family and I think they understand that themselves I mean you know I mean, we can't even begin to understand what it must be like to lose a son and to never have their body do you know what I mean and you know we can couch it in every kind of language we possibly think we can talk about and say but at least he did something and they know he, he died doing what he he would never have lived with himself if he didn't do everything that he could do properly but that's no comfort really I think it's what they what, what, what somebody says to it uh I, I, I've said to them many times I don't believe Jer should have been on an 8,000 metre peak if he wasn't prepared to just keep walking you know and you know I get, I'll probably get criticism from the climbing community for that and people always latch on to that kind of soundbite which is that there's an unwritten code of the mountain that like you know uh, if, if you know if, 
if you come across somebody, you have to leave them there. You leave them to die. You don't leave them to die. You do everything in your powers to be able to do it. But there, it's easier to probably turn around and say the unwritten code is that like everybody who subscribes to climbing an 8,000 meter peak knows that in their heart of hearts that if something happens above 8,000 meters, you can only rely on yourself. And that's, just, that's the basis of that. It doesn't mean that people don't help each other. That's not true. Mm-hmm. It's just been perpetuated a bit by the whole Everest story of people walking over falling bo- fallen bodies. And lest I sound like I'm going but like, just I think as we were going into shooting on the mountain that year, I, I believe, I remember uh, reading a story on, on one of the websites about um, people on Everest that year, that season, walking. There was a, 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 a doctor, a girl, who had tweeted kind of like oh you know she'd seen people who were lying down on the way up to the summit and then she kind of and, and she tweeted on the way back down oh that guy that we saw collapsed on the way up you know he, he's dead now and I'm going but you continued past somebody who had fallen you know and lying there to get to the summit for, for many people it's their only chance to do this they spent $60,000 to get their permits to climb that mountain it's a it's a circus Everest but you know um it bore itself out this year, I guess, with the whole thing that happened. But you know what I mean. K two isn't like that. It's it's not it's not a mountain with um, commercial climbers as such. You know, it's not uh, amateur climbers. Every you really want to be a pretty serious climber to climb that mountain in the first place. And yeah. having been there, because I mean that comes mm. across really strongly in the film. You know that there is a compulsion to climb it mm. despite its dangers, and a necessary ruthlessness in a way to survive in some sense having been to that environment can you understand the pull of it it's hard to fathom from yeah here. Uh, absolutely I, I, here's the thing I mean let's face it I, I, I took what would be the easiest way in I flew in via helicopter from Scardu so I didn't do the 10 day like just to get into to K2 it's a it's, it's a it's a it's a 10 day walk in okay it's mad, it's just crazy um, and the hardships, I mean, they spend six we- up to six weeks acclimatizing, going up and down the mountain, fixing ropes. Um, I never, I mean, no matter what, I don't think I'd ever have the lure to, I think I'm, I'm, I like my comforts too much to ever put myself through the hardships of that. But at the same time, there's an obsessive draw. I mean, and, and, and a huge part of what the summit about is about is, is obsession. And it's one of my favorite themes in film. And... You know, this may sound like bullshit, but like, I found myself waiting in Scardu every day, watching the weather, looking at the parameters. My parameters for that situation, for 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 us there, it was Stephen O'Reilly, myself, and, and Mike Wright, the engineer who owned the Cineflex, and our fixer Nissar Malik. And we had to. It was a constant battle to kind of get the military to give us the time to fly with, mixed with the good weather and we had a very short period of time because I had no money to do it properly you know the BBC had done tried to do it four years earlier and spent 400,000 and still never managed to film K2 I had a tenth of that there so we had one shot and one shot only and we took a risk the morning we went and it was perfect I mean you know the euphoria at that was amazing but the level of obsession I, I ironically found myself emailing Wilco asking his weather guys the same guys he had got weather maps for the mountain to give me the weather maps for the mountain and I thought this is like life imitating art because I was becoming like Wilco I mean I, I may have alienated everyone I, uh, it, one by one I pissed everybody else off with that single minded mm-hmm. version of we're not going until we get this mountain we're here to do this and 
you know, I probably didn't thank them enough for their, for their. It was just endless waiting. I mean, when I say endless, we were there ten days. We were lucky. I, I in my brain thought, my mind thought that, you know, I may be gone for four weeks. You know, it's kind of like an an, an, an ancient expedition to Africa. Like, you know what I mean? I may be gone some time. You know, <laughs> but. Uh, we couldn't afford much more than 10 days and, and you know that, that, that equipment I had you know if you were paying a day rate you know it would have been the budget of the movie and um, I probably didn't thank them enough at the time for their support and their their, their um, patience with me but I just had to film the mountain I felt you know we can't make this film without seeing the mountain and you know there was three years of, of, of research and I needed to see the mountain myself I felt it wouldn't be complete until I saw yeah. it you know that's, you, you know that may come. I'm just saying absolute bullshit, but it's absolutely no, true. But, I mean, I put it in context. Yeah, for me. you need to have a connection with it yourself. And as beautiful as it looks on those shots, I can't begin. I I only looked at it with my own eyes once because it was so intensely bright. Because uh, I was filming on screen, so to look away and then look at the screens would take my eyes about a minute and a half to 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 re to readjust to the screen, and it was too important. The time every every second counted there. Um, so I only looked at the window once and it was so blinding but the scale of the mountain your heart just jumps you go it's breathtaking it's and it's wonderful because we kind of live in a world where you know we've, we've we're going to Mars you know <laughs> there, there are very few things that inspire that oh my goodness yeah. it's it is great no it is yeah you know it is and it's I and, and it it, it probably to answer the question you asked it put in my mind the reason why people go there because I mean obviously the people who go there have a very alpha driven approach to their lives and it's very competitive and it's all about them getting up the mountain very singular no no, mountaineering is a group it is a group um, activity Mm -hmm. very difficult to do that I don't think you could do that mountain on your own I don't think it's possible but I understand why they got there's a camaraderie in the base camp there's got to be days where everybody hates each other. There's endless days of waiting out weather. But the beauty, the beauty of that scenery and the fact that so few people on this earth, I mean, what, you know, all of our sites, they're, you know, they're tourist attractions now and they're and people wheeled in, even Everest, you know. Are, yeah, yeah. You know they're, they're accessible in a way that... Yeah. You yeah. can go to, you can do, a, a, you know, Everest. You can, you can do probably base camp treks to K2, but it's much more difficult because just because of where it is. It's Pakistan. Mm-hmm. It's not exactly the most... Um, unhostile country in, in on the planet at the moment, and the other side is China. <laughs> so at least uh, Everest has that. I mean, that that way in for people to see it. But uh, I'm not saying the, the walk into Everest is any more beautiful. But like the Karakoram is astonishing. It's just um, uh, you know, words do fail you when you just look at it. You just kind of go, you know, uh, you just kept going. Oh my god. Oh my. You know, every time you look at it, you just see these incredible sights. You know, I'm doing a terrible job describing what no, kind of director I'm. No, you're not. You're not. And I kind of veered off point, but um, no worries. Into, you know, you alluded to it there. I was just curious as to the practicalities of, you know, who do you seek permission from to film on K2 or the actual practicalities of going there? What? All oh, right. Well, you know, you know, the reconstructions weren't filmed on K2. They were filmed yes, they elsewhere. Yes, they were filmed in the Swiss Alps. In the Swiss Alps, okay. exactly. Um, but to go to to K2. I think the, the, the process of doing that uh, started about a year before going. Uh, we went to, ended up going in July of 2011. I made my first uh, investigations in April of 2010. Okay. 
uh, and I'd written to um, Ascari Aviation, who were the the, the the civilian wing, if you can call that, of the Pakistan military. You have to remember in Pakistan there is no civilian aviation. There is no private fly, private aviation like the way we have here or in the UK or America. Uh, you just can't fly a, you know, a private plane or a helicopter there. So you have to use the military in some shape or form. I mean, it's a very martial country, Pakistan. Um, so... Uh, and that involves sending visas to get ISI clearance and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it was back and forth. I agreed, kind of fee- figures and fees, how many hours we need. You need to fly two helicopters. It's just the logistics of it. And then one day I cottoned on to this thing. I, I, I watched uh, Planet Earth and I looked at the Snow Leopard sequences and there was a little bit about the Karakoram. And I looked at the end credits and I saw at the end, you know, um, Pakistan sequences. You know, the guy was uh, Walkabout Films. It was a guy called Nisar Malik. So I sent him an email and I went, hi, my name's Nick Ryan. I'm making this movie about K2, about blah, blah. I explained it all. I've got no money. Um, but I, I've been in contact with Ascari Aviation and he sent me an email straight back with his phone number and I rang him. I was in Cork at the time. And um, I remember speaking to him and he went, and he was so, he was so, he was really, really, really great guy. And he was just like, look, you can't afford me, but you know, your project sounds great. I'll do everything I can to help you. So I went, well, thank you. So he started liaising on, beha- on my behalf. He's, Pakistani native lives in France and, and England has done a lot of stuff with the BBC um, which is good because we were part of the BBC partially um, and uh, he was brilliant and he he kind of started getting the thing again we had resupplied all of our visas and then Stephen was coming and then when I was originally going to film with the guy who had done some work for me on the German Adrian Warren who had done he directed a lot of the Planet Earth or no, Life on Earth series with David Attenborough amazing guy uh, but he he unfortunately had cancer and he up until the last day he was he, like literally one of his last days he was applying for visas to go to K2 with me and he died and um, but um, so that, that didn't work out but um, uh, I got in contact with Mike Wright then who was a really really gentleman who, whose normal work with the Cineflex is filming you know, like in Dubai at the Grand Prix and stuff <laughs> so I told him like fancy coming to K2 <laughs> and he went what the hell are they going to put a film on uh, but um, he uh, so I, I managed to convince him to come so I, he needed to get clearance and we were constantly constantly getting clearances uh, or trying to get clearances and then at the end of May they killed Bin Laden and I just went I think I may have been the only person who went fuck why did I do that <laughs> because uh, he, they'd found him in a bad about like 60 miles north of um, of Islamabad and I thought well that's just gone and probably screwed everything up here you know so because we flew into Islamabad six weeks after that okay. and drove right through Abbottabad Westerners were very um, not, not that some weren't working but we were told do not get out of the cars do not move the thing drove uh, there's a uh, yeah here's a shameless promotion on the DVD there's a, a making of that whole section and you'll see we drove over the Babusar uh, the, the, the Pass where there was a, a Taliban came up on the van and we were all standing and Stephen was filming so we have it on camera and we all just stood there kind of going oh shit you know and they waved um, and we just got back in their vehicles and drove off and it was like possibly one of the most heart and mouth feelings I've ever oh ever ever had because yeah. it's a 24 25 hour drive to get to the town that you get to because we couldn't fly but the logistics were um, really difficult, but like once on the ground, we were we were we were great. But like, but we had to go and ask the uh, 
you know, we brought this equipment and we had to ask the military if we could drill holes in our helicopters to mount it. And eventually they wouldn't let us, which allowed us to, we had to, to put the, the camera out the side, which meant flying with the door open, which really made no difference because helicopters aren't, aren't pressurized anyway. And, um, you know, I'd done all the research as much as I could. I knew helicopters could only get to 6,000, maybe 6,500 metres at, at the most. That's their absolute, their technical ceiling, I think, you know. And um, so I briefed the pilots where I wanted to go when we get in there, where we'd need to be to see. I looked at 3D versions. I built a 3D version of the mountain to know what I'd see from what angle. Uh, and I said, I want to get the bottleneck area and the Sorak and as much of that. And so I storyboarded it and showed it to the pilots. And on the day, that morning when we flew in, they just flew out. Of, uh, we refueled at a place called um, Paiju, which is about, it's the kind of halfway. It was about, it's about a four-day walk in, <laughs> if you were walking in. And we refueled, took off. Weather was beautiful. So we said, let's go as high as possible. So it went straight up. And it was only when I was looking directly at the bottleneck area and, the, and I could see the bottleneck couloir, which I'd spent three years looking at in photographs and video footage taken on the day. And I'm going like, that's, that's not possible. And I went like, you know, how can I see this? And I looked at it, and that's when I looked out the window. And I was right parallel with it, just, well, a little bit lower. But, um, and we were at 700, and that's at 8,000 meters, you know. And I asked the pilot, I said, how high are we? And he went, uh, he didn't, they don't use meters. He said 25,500 feet. And I'm going like, that's not possible. That's 1,000 meters higher than the helicopters are actually meant to fly, which got them into severe trouble. But they pushed it. They, they knew what I wanted to do, and they were so compliant, and they're brilliant pilots. But it was possibly very dangerous because you're straining the engine. There's oxygen is so thin. It's, t- it's taking every ounce of power just to keep the, the helicopter moving. And you can't stop. You have to keep moving because if you stop, you're just going to drop out of the sky. But you know what? You're euphoric because you're not taking enough oxygen. <laughs> you're, I, I'm euph- you're euphoric because you're seeing the mountain. You're euphoric because you're getting the shots. You're, you know, it's, uh, you're, you're also sitting there aware that you're looking at a gravesite like that. Yeah. Somewhere on this mountain is Jerry McDonald. And somewhere on this mountain are the other climbers who died and, never, and, and will remain there forever. And, you know, all of these things are running through your brain. And it's like a dream. It's like it happens in an instant and you're just looking at this place. And, um, but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and we had planned three missions, and we had to go back and refuel to this little staging point on the second one. Uh, the second helicopter, the, the, you have a support helicopter that has to fly alongside when you're over ice for the very reason what happened in the next one. The, the I, I, um, I was in the sec- the first helicopter with the camera again for the second flight, very low, and the um, uh. The, the pilot turned around and said, we've lost the other helicopter, we have to turn back. And I went, what do you mean? He said, well, we've lost communication, they had a, an engine problem. So we went, look, a bit, now became a search and rescue mission, and we flew back, uh, and thankfully, all the way along, there's these little places to land, because it's you know, a glacier, when you're up high, it just looks like a gravel road, but when you're down close, it's 60 foot, 30, it's just like there's nowhere to land. It's like the surface of the moon, it really is. It's, it's, it's an alien world, and... Uh, they'd found one of these little staging points all the way up and they'd come down uh, subsequently found out that because they refueled out of barrels there was sediment in the barrel blocked the fuel filter cut the engine and they had to look they had seconds seconds I'm not just this isn't a fake documentary made up thing they had set because Mike he was a Royal Navy engineer Mm -hmm. the the camera guy he he was in the Royal Navy as a helicopter engineer he's a pilot he looked at the engine saw the, uh, the engine lights out looked and he went looked out the windows and went we're fucked. That's it. We're not. We're not getting out of this. And he said they were just great pilots. They just poof, straight into action. They saw that thing. They came in. Came in hard. 
no damage though. And it took about two hours to fix the, the engine, at which point I got hypoxia. And <laughs> Stephen did the third flight and got some amazing footage. And um, I just wanted to get off that mountain because I just like I was at five thousand meters with my head starting to swell, and I was just going like I feel really sick. And you start to panic then, and then you know, you got down. We got down to Scardoon by the time we got there, but just at two thousand meters. And I felt great. All I had was a bit of a headache, but I felt back to normal again. And but we were just and and then it's like, and that's it, you know. And then it was like twenty four hours driving all the way back to Iceland. <laughs> as I mean, as you describe it, uh, the the investment, the personal investment in it, it is slightly akin to what those mountaineers. Are driven by themselves. Is that is that overstating? Uh, possibly. You know what the, the thing. If you do look at it, I, I, when I think about it now, you know what we did was ridiculously risky. Mm-hmm. Almost, I think that the odds, I think, were actually even slightly worse than the the statistics that going to demand. Insurance was the problem on that as well when we did that. Um, but for many for many reasons, for for reasons of, I, I actually think the the drive from Islamabad to Skardu was more dangerous than the helicopter flight because you're on the Karakoram Highway. It's like literally a thousand foot drops at some points, and you're on like a, it's like a donkey path. I mean, I'm not exactly anyone will say it's one of the most dangerous, unstable roads because it's constantly landslides and you know the road just disappears underneath you. So uh, it's part and parcel of it. But you know, without sounding egotistical or um, alpha about it. At the time, you're just driven by the very de- the need and the desire to get, and that's what I was saying earlier on. You know, I probably pissed every one of those at one point, every single one of them off by the drive to actually uh, get what you needed to do. But you're there for a job; you're there to do something, uh, and I wanted to see it. And the obsession was there to see it. Like I knew at that point then, and when I started the film in 2008, like in 2009, in the beginning. When, when I kind of went, this is really going to happen, I'm really going to make this, and, and you know, raise the fine. It took two years to do that. But when I decided that, I never really thought I would ever go to K2. I remember thinking, this is just not, it's a step too far, and it's never going to be, you know, I, I don't need to, I have enough footage, or I will have enough footage. But it, it became apparent when I was filming the reconstructions that this film could not be complete without, even for me personally, as a director, having experienced it. And was that more of an emotional thing yeah. as opposed to a practical decision? Uh, it, it very much was an emotional thing, but there was a, the background of it was practical. It was, okay. I mean, you can justify emotional responses by putting a practical reason on something. It was like, well, we have to do it that way. And, and you know what? Uh, practically, I'm so glad it is because it's one of the, the talking points. It's one of the things I think that people see because it's, it's, it's been filmed like it's never been filmed before and it'll be very difficult for anyone ever to do that again. So, um, Were you always going to do the reconstructions? I think the drama director in me probably thought so. Um, I'm, I'm really trying to remember at the time that I actually think that was going to be the case in the beginning. I think as soon as we started hearing the stories and I knew that like a lot of what happened in the film happened at night time, I knew that that... that um, with, it took a long time before I was, I was ever allowed access to, to, to archive footage. You know, the McDonald family didn't want to have any involvement, didn't want to know me, didn't want to talk to me for at least a year and a half, two years. It took a long time of talking to them. Um, so I didn't have access to Jared's footage. But I also knew, by the way, Jared didn't have his camera on the day of the main, of the climb. So I didn't know what was on that. I knew Wilco had footage, but he was making a documentary, so he wasn't making his footage accessible to me. Okay. I knew Frederick Strang, the Swedish climber, had footage. 
um, but um, and he did send it to me eventually and I looked at it but he didn't get to the summit so I kind of went in my head I went they were going to be too busy surviving so they weren't really going to be doing what we see in the Blair Witch Project turning a camera on themselves with a snotty nose going we're not going to make it you know they literally were busy surviving and you know taking photographs and snapshots was the last thing on their mind and there really isn't anything from the summit forward there's nothing I mean there's stuff taken from Camp 4 the morning of the after the summit so but there's really very very little thankfully there was people in base camp filming you know the the rescue operations in in action, so there was a there was an inherent drama in that. But again, I didn't know what was on that footage. But how do we tell this story? And I just knew that there were going to be tracks of this that were going to be at at, at night time. And then Mark Monroe, who wrote the film with me, he was very aware that you know, well, how do we get off the mountain? And that's why we had the Walter Bonatti story from a claustrophobic aspect. But the reconstructions, I felt the only way of really doing. Um, uh, doing the film justice was reconstructions. Now, for some people, reconstructions are a really, really dirty word, but you know, I, I couldn't care less in that res- respect because this is such a complex story. It got so many narrative strands, and it was already going to be so many voices that I figured whatever keeps an audience engaged in the story and keeps you focused on what's happening is the best way of telling, telling, the, t- telling the story. So, um, from that point forward. When I when I when I realized how complex it was going to be, we decided yes, we'll 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 look at the key scenes that need to be reconstructed that will actually you know um, show uh, the, the reasons as to why things happened, and use that to tell the story. Okay. Um, you've mentioned it there. You've alluded to it. Speaking to the family was that as difficult as yeah. the actual physicals? Jerry was. I mean, it was. He was only very recently dead. Yeah. When you started, yeah, I, I, I think we went down and talked to him, to, to Jerry's mum Gertie and the family very by the Christmas of two thousand and eight, and to say, look, we're going to make this film, and you know, you know, it was just to just to just to let them know that we were going to be doing something on this, and we're going to be talking to Pam and talking to Wilco, and you know, it was with the purpose of would they be interested in 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 contributing? Because at that point, again, as I say, we had interviewed Will uh, Pemba. And I knew what Jared had done on the mountain, and you know, part and parcel was trying to get that. Um, uh, they talked to Pemba, so they were aware of what had happened as well. You see, so they wanted to get the truth out there as well. But I don't think they felt maybe that this was going to be the method of doing it at the time. Um, you'd have to speak to them about that, I guess. But um, but subsequently, I mean, it took a, a long, long time. But a bit, they, when they eventually did, kind of, I, I would explain what I was trying to do, and the, the, you know, how I was going to try and make the film, and. How are we going to do it? But I have to be very clear: they had absolutely no editorial control. They didn't know. They didn't. They never saw anything in work in progress cuts. But you know, they agreed to be interviewed. I interviewed um, Gertie, which is um, uh, Jer's mum. Along, it, it, it was a group interview with um, with, the, with his um, sisters. Yeah, and uh, they all sat and did that. But we there was too many voices in the film, so we didn't put them in the end. So Jer was kind of represented on screen by. His brother JJ and Damien, who's um, married to Denise, who's Jer's sister, is his brother-in-law. Because J- J- uh, Damien was really the spearhead for trying to get the truth out there and finding what what had happened. So I think his voice was an interesting one in the film. Um, but I'll be very, very clear that like they had absolutely no, you know, if I turned around and said that Jared done something, you know, I mean that would be what would have to ha- have gone in, you know. But you know. Um, it, it was 
all those interviews were difficult. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. I mean, talking to his mom and his sisters about about the about it. JJ was just it was a five hour long interview, and it was just so emotional. I mean, I think we were all in tears. I'm not just saying that. At the end, I mean, he told he told the story at the end, which we just didn't put in the film. In the end, it's just if I tell you now, I just start crying again. So I'm not going to do it. But like it's um the um. Uh, but they were all difficult. I mean, Cecilia was a, a, was an incredibly. I mean, we were all in tears at the end of that one as well. Stephen and and, and Dunlock, who was the sound man on the, that one in, in Sweden. Um, but I thought Cecilia would never talk. I mean, I'd interviewed the family before all that, and I, Cecilia was the last person I interviewed because she she she'd taken a lot of them. Um, she done. I call me a lot many times to talk over it. Well, what is it going to be about, and how are we going to do it? And I've never talked about this. I don't want to sure if I want to go back there, you know. I mean, she saw her husband die in front of her eyes, you know. So, but she was brilliant and amazing. So, um, but they were all difficult. I mean, the hardest part of making this film was the interviews. I mean, the rest of making the film is a pretty much a technical exercise, you know. Yes, um, and then working with Pemba. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Sure. Yeah. Pemba. Well, Pemba was so central to to the story and um, he, he became my technical advisor for the reconstructions which was I think really important um, there, was, there was Pemba cheering Dorje cheering Sherp uh, uh, cheering Lama Sherpa and um, Basang Lama Sherpa all four of them had been on K2 that day uh, three of them had been on the summit Pemba cheering Lama and, or sorry um, Basang Lama and cheering Dorje if you get all those names and mm-hmm. uh, and poor old Cheering Lama's brother and cousin were the two people in that photograph okay. that came down the mountain. And uh, but Pemba is a, a brilliant climber. He's a very technically technically proficient climber, and his memory of the events was 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 very clear and fantastic. And you know, he's a voice that we you know that to me was central to the story. And um, it made difficult. It, ma- it made filming in the Alps difficult because. They're Sherpa. They're not filmmakers, and filmmaking isn't a linear process. It's not. Doesn't you know? It's not like climbing the mountain. You don't go from one point to the next, and you, you know you're moving a camera here and you're matching angles. And I was using green screen on the mountains because the mountains in the background, as beautiful as the Alps were, they do we have to get out of here? No. Uh, the uh, as beautiful as the the Alps were, um, they don't look a bit like the Karakoram, and I felt that, um, you know, to if these reconstructions were going to work properly, they weren't going to be like those where there's clearly a taller mountain in the background, you know. So I took a lot of photographs, and I had photographs from the climbers that were going to become the background images for those reconstructions, much to the frustration of Robbie Ryan, by the way. <laughs> he said, what's wrong with those men? <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but Pemba, like we'd set something up, and he'd go, no, 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 when, when, um, when the Serbian climber fell, um, you know, Jared was here, and Marco was here, and it was just amazing to have that. And, we, you know, you have to be utterly respectful of the fact that these people had lived through this once before, and here we were. And, you know, film, film sets can be fairly irreverent places at the best times, and, you know, you can't, you can't have 16, 18 days on a mountain and not have any, some form of levity, you know, yeah. some kind of lightness. And it's, it's hard, though, you know. Um, uh, but they were amazing, and they, they adapted, and they, 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 they learned fairly, very quick. The first couple of days, every shot almost took maybe 20, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of explanation. You probably get that, that I, I'm clearly good at 
explaining things <laughs> going on. But Pamba, would, I'd have to explain very clearly why we were doing it this way and how we and, and how it would cut together. So you were always kind of jumping ahead. Compounded by the fact that we were at three and a half thousand meters, which is twelve thousand feet, and that is high enough to make you just want to go to sleep at any given juncture. Just like, can I just go to sleep now? It's just, it's yeah. You had to be so prepared and on it. And this, you know, the sun was beating down. It was, it was either really hot, or then the wind would come in and be freezing. And when you say really hot, what sort of temperature? Oh yeah, it'd be like twenty, thirty degrees, and okay. when the sun came, and when 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 it wasn't windy. Uh, at the top of the main, you'd be there in t-shirts and shorts, but snow, and then you'd get, you'd have to be just completely blitz because you're just, you're, you know, you got the sun above and then the reflected light off the snow. I mean, one of the, one of the, this is what they tell me to climb, one of the most dangerous places to get sunburn when you're climbing a mountain is your upper palate. Because when you're climbing a mountain, what are you doing? You're going, so you, you're meant to breathe through your nose. And what happens is the snow bounces up into your upper palate and burns it because it's clearly you know so sensitive and you get blisters mm-hmm. so you have to learn to keep your mouth shut or balaclava over it so you never think of that do you so did you have to do like a huge amount of physical prep yourself before you went or oh i was <laughs> so physically fit doing it. no uh, i uh, we did some climbing technique practice then in glendalock just okay. some of the some of the crew uh, i did it mostly just to get a get a handle on what it was to how to use the equipment and just to have a technical proficiency in getting it right. I think if you're going to do something like reconstruction like this, and you've got to get the details right. Having Pemba there was going to make sure and sure that was it. We had the right gear. It was everything was was identical, and you know the the the, the surface. But physicality, I would I would stress to people, anyone who wants to shoot on a mountain, get very physically fit because it's it but it's like making any film you need to be physically fit it's just such an an emotional and physical strain on you anyway um but uh but working at altitude is it's even more difficult it's just things get everything's really slow and because because of where you were we you know i mean just because you're in the alps doesn't mean like you know even if you're over a 20 foot drop that's enough to kill you sometimes we were over five four hundred five hundred foot drops and everyone had to be roped in, so health and safety is so paramount, and moving gear around. And it's just, it was, it was hard. Intensive. But you know, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm, believe me, I'm not bitching about how hard it is to make a film. No, event, but, but like, it is as it is. You know, very much so. The, um, you never met Jer, but in no. in any sense, did you have the feeling that you worked very, very closely with him? And is that strange, having? Never met somebody. There was an interview that's that's used heavily in the well, not heavily, but a good bit in the film. Um, that was done by Limerick West, I think. I, I get this wrong every time in my brain. Um, and it was brilliant. It was done just. Uh, it was conducted just. I think on his either his last visit home over the, over the Christmas period, and he talked about climbing Everest, and he. Climbed. Uh, he tried to climb K two in two thousand six, and I had a serious injury. And talked about that. And he talked about. He didn't talk about going back at that point. I don't mm-hmm. think he, he he knew he was going. Or at least if he did, he wasn't saying it was family. Um. But he was so funny and warm and articulate and such a gentleman and such a gentle soul. And you could tell from listening to him how genuine he really was. And that was really. Uh, I just felt, 
you know, between that and, and there was a clip of an interview that Kevin Hughes had filmed uh, on Everest. He'd gone out to do a, a, a documentary for, for, for Pat Falvey on Everest in 2003 and Jared Ger- talked about rescuing Pat Falvey and, and it's a clip in the film where he talks about finding Pat and Pat was collapsed and you can see Jared just living the moment and breaking down emotionally and that to me said more about you know the kind of person that he was it's just that he couldn't leave people behind and that you know he he, he was a he, he don't get me wrong he he did as much ego and drive to climb a mountain as any of these climbers but he also had this uh wonderful um, empathy with other people and he was a, a politician in the respect that he was the diplomat should I say maybe more than a politician a diplomat where you know Wilco's rather abrasive character and, and pissing off the other teams were going no you must do it this way or get out of my way or don't do this or you're going you know, to pay to use my ropes Jared would go around afterwards and say hey let's have a cup of tea and you know he's a good guy he's just you know <laughs> it's a language thing or something yeah. you know and yeah. um he would go around and smooth over all the cracks and make everybody work together and 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 and, and be a a really good guy and you know i think between between that and you know meeting his family and talking to them and working with them so closely then they're really a testament to who he was i think you can always tell a person from the people that they come from mm-hmm. and they are like that and they're wonderful warm caring loving people and you know, um, I really wish I could have met him, but I don't know if I, I mean if if I did if I didn't know him, would I have made this one? I don't know. That's the thing. Yeah, I, all I all you could ever hope for is that like what what there is 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 a fitting tribute to what I think was one of the world's great human beings, okay. and a, a true hero. Okay. Um. So you had invested all of this time and energy, and so when did it become apparent to you that you had created something? You know, because it was a great, it was a, it was a success. Uh, when did that become? Well, it was a. Di- uh, I mean, honestly, it was a difficult process because it was a twelve-month editing process, and you know, people wavered. I'll be honest. You know, I mean, you know, we had a nearly finished film, and then the BBC didn't like it. You know, um, what didn't they like? They thought it was oh, what the hell is this about? It's confusing. I mean, it was a rough cut. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we we'd stripped away the. Um, Stripped away. I had done VO over all the the, the, the non English interviews. You know what I mean. So I spoken over. So I got rid of that and put the RT subtitles in, which are in the finished film. But we watched it on a tiny screen, and and it was just they missed it. And you know there was temporary card holders, and there was still green screen in there, and you know. But ostensibly, it was the finished film, like the the, the the structure of the film as it was now. And but they they wanted something that was just a little more direct and a little more straightforward and not so circuitous and the problem that's difficult when you have so many perspectives but it, it, but it's almost impossible to tell that story in, in, in a linear fashion and, and in case I sound defensive we did obviously investigate even on paper Mark and myself initially um, the, 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 the route of moving the film in a linear fashion but if you started that story and went from beginning to the end it would be 40 minutes before anything happens you'd be watching people discussing ropes and talking about things on a mountain that you that you go oh, oh, oh. when you see them discussing ropes when you the thing is we play the film from beginning to end in the first act almost the beginning to the end in the first act so we when we come into the second act you know we now know eleven like ten people are dead or you know missing and whatever and um, 
but it rewinds and then we go back to investigate so now when we see people discussing ropes you know like you know pay attention here you know you should have been paying attention to this and you know all those climbers in that in that tent should have been paying attention because their lives depended on the dis- uh, the discussions and the agreements that were made in a tent that were subsequently not honored and that's the problem so now you get to see that and and it, it was amazing to have that archive we had two cameras between Jer and Frederick Strang on that I'd heard about those meetings when Pemba discussed and that's that's why I, I believe Pemba's story because verbatim he told us what had happened in those and he hadn't seen the video and when I saw those videos a year maybe a year and a half later it was like it was like finding it was like it was like stepping through time it was like walking stepping back in time because I was watching something that I've been told about and this is exactly what he said uh, so I, I, I found that fascinating. I haven't said I've I've watched the entire things. They're an hour long meeting, you know. What I mean, and it's very difficult to go through it all because the sound isn't so good in certain parts of it. But anyway, we we structured it, but, but they didn't seem to want to do it that way, and I wasn't happy because it took out a lot of the themes of the film obsession about going back again because we discussed about Jeremy Wilco being on K two in two thousand and six, and you know what drives you to do that. And they also biggest difference was it took out the Walter Bonatti story which I thought was a wonderful parallel the, the Italian climber in 1954 which also then deals with the whole theme of the, the film which was stories, everyone has a story everybody has a story and when you strip those things away I felt the film was just a little TV, okay. <laughs> which is fine because it was for the BBC and that's the pro- so as, you know we, 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 we focused on delivering that uh, and then when it was finished, I just turned around to the film board and I said, you've got to give me two more weeks. Just give me two more weeks and let me do like, the film I want to make. And I rang up Mark and I rang up Ben Stark, who was the editor in London, who was a brilliant editor, and I said, open up the cut from the 26th of March, which is the, the one that we had floundered on with the BBC. And, um, the, uh, uh, and he went, we're going back there. And I went, yeah, we're going back there. And that's what we put together. And uh, you know what? At the time, everyone going like, fine, if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. And that's fine. That's, that's the film that got selected for London and the film that eventually got selected for, for Sundance. And <laughs> whether it's ironic or not, we won for best editing in Sundance. So, <laughs> so that sounds terrible. No, it doesn't. I'm saying no, that, no, but, no, but there's doesn't. a kind of divine justice in that one, yeah. in that like, well, you know, and... The problem is it's very difficult to step away after a year looking at something and know whether it's, you know, is it just me or am I tired or have I seen it or can you see this with fresh eyes? But, you know, it seemed to it seemed to reach out to people and people responded to it. And you got a huge reaction in London. Uh, and, you know, I thank Michael Hayden, who's here now, actually, for that. And he, he, he saw the film and, and really responded to it. And, uh, and I thank Dave Courier in Sundance, who had heard about it because of John Batsek, my UK producer uh, in, in Passion Pictures. He he had heard through John about the film. He said, hey, any chance I could see it? And I said, yeah. And so I sent it to Sundance and I couldn't believe when we were in competition. And it was just like, whoa. It just, it's a dream come true, isn't it? I mean, um, and that was such an eye-opener going to Sundance and having, you know, lines of people going into the film and people talking about it. And Pemba, I brought Pemba over to Sundance he was stopped on the streets by everybody and they wanted his autograph and pictures with him and it was so wonderful and everyone was just going like I don't know what it did to his ego he was he's, he's so he's so egoless Pemba in that respect but he, he it was so wonderful to finally see you know 
I'll tell you what it is. You set out to make a film like this, it's because you want to get a story out there to the widest audience possible. Why, why else make a documentary about something and you want to get a story out there? I mean, you know, it, you know, some people say, I made a film, I made it, I don't care if people see it, I just wanted to tell the story. I wanted as many people in the world to see it. We couldn't have done it more effectively than that in that respect. And that I am, I'm so proud of the fact that, 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 that we managed to get it out there to as many people like that, you know? And, you know, that's what we set out to do. That's what you set out to do, which was my first question that I didn't ask. So that's brilliant that you just answered it. Um, <laughs> it probably sounds terribly <laughs> No, it, it doesn't, but why, why else make it? Hey, well, exactly, you know. Um, so then just moving on, um, how has your... Have opportunities opened up for you that weren't on account of the summit? Has it, or has it given you more of a direction? Has it clarified what you would like to do? Um, it, it it gave me much more of an appreciation. I mean, I always loved documentaries, mm-hmm. but you know, I mean, I never saw myself as a documentary filmmaker. And did you ever think of making it as a piece of fiction? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And for about a month after Sundance, it was. I, I was in talks with studios to do that, but then there was an Everest picture, two or three pictures, I think, on Everest. So we, I, I, and you know what? To be quite honest, the 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 way it would have had, the the ending could never be the way it is in the film because it's just it's just too damn sad. It's too tragic. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And I could not have a film where we have whoever the Jared character is coming out of the mists with a, a sherpa over each shoulder. You know what I mean? It's just it would not play true. I just. I, you know what? No matter what, if they you know took the rights of the film, I, I would don't think I would have directed it. I would have gone. I can't go back there. You know. Anyway, but um, but we I, I did. I met with some very very senior people on that, and um, it fascinated me, but also scared me in that respect. Um, the reality is, in terms of strange enough, I think everyone thinks that you're obviously going to be so busy after that, like that, like just about everyone else who worked on the film got more work out of it than. You know, Mark is always busy. Mark is fantastic. Mark had three films in Sundance. That Mark Monroe, the writer, he had Sound City and Diane Crystal, which is playing right now, when this as, as we're as we're recording this, um, that year in Sundance. And um, Mark is just the hardest working man in show business. Really, he's brilliant. Um, if there's one collaborator on that movie, I could not have done without more than anybody. It's Mark. He was just he, li- he lived every step of that alongside us you know he's amazing and um, the but you know I think people automatically assume that you're um, really really busy but I mean for the year afterwards I mean I did a lot of touring with the film traveling with the film the film launched in the United States and then you know uh, so there was a lot of publicity PR a lot of festivals and stuff and that's great and it's, it's a wonderful thing but it is also a very dangerous thing to do because it kind of takes you out of the loop of something for a while okay. and then you've got to step back into it uh, I'm, but in the background I was setting up other projects where I'm starting on another project right now that I'm actually only produ- another documentary that I'm producing which I probably can't talk too much about right now <laughs> heading to the United States on Monday okay. uh, to start on um, and also I'm producing a feature film for Billy O'Brien, which is going, hopefully we're just funded now and we're going to be shooting that in the United States as well in, in January of next year. That that was going on in the background when I was doing this since 2010. Welcome to the world of film financing. So. I know, yes, and I mean, that was another question, funding, financing, the challenges that that involves. And 
Well, it's just it's getting more and more difficult in, in every aspect. I mean, you know, look, I much prefer being a director. I'm a producer at a necessity, okay. you know. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm good at putting people together. I'm not, uh, you know, uh, uh, but I shouldn't underestimate what I've done as a producer, you know what I mean? I produced and directed The Summit, which is a, a very schizophrenic place to be because a producer and a director, they don't have to be loggerheads, but, like, you know, you, it's kind of like the producer and you's going, like, you can't afford to do that, and the director's going, oh, but I have to do it. So you're staring yourself in the mirror. Okay. Uh, as a producer, I, I, I think I'd always come down on the side of the director, which probably makes me not a very good producer. <laughs> but uh, a popular one, though. popular, one, yeah, maybe, hopefully. But it's not a popularity contest, is it? But it's um, uh, it is. It's more and more difficult, you know. Um, uh, and obviously, making documentaries, uh, it's it's really difficult to raise finance because nobody pre. No, you, you can't pre-sell a documentary unless you're someone like Michael Moore, probably. You know what I mean? And so it's very, very difficult. I had a lot of really wonderful help on on the summit in respect of um, on, in the final. I mean, I got John Batsick involved very on, which he brought the BBC. Um, RT were really supportive. The film board were super supportive as well. And um, in, in the four eight one aspect, John McDonald was very helpful. If you know John from Fantastic Films, and um, but you know, I mean, I think the original budget was like. You, know, you don't know where to start with that because you don't know what it's going to cost but it was an expensive enough film to make because of filming in Switzerland and then the whole archive and then the whole editing aspect so it doesn't take a lot to, to cost a lot that's the problem you know what I mean I mean, it can, yeah. it can spiral out of control very 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 quickly so you've got to manage that um, you know the project I'm starting on now hopefully it's, going to, it's not going to be reconstructed it'll be archived probably so but archive's expensive you know what I mean you think you know um, you know you, 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 the thing is at this stage until you've done your interview you don't know what you're going to need it's the same process it's not like with a film like with, with Billy's film Billy O'Brien's film where we know what we have we have a piece of we have this great script and we know where we, how we're going to do that and then you've got to figure out the elements that fall mm-hmm. into place on that so you can budget for that the problem with budgeting for that is that everything goes great but you know what, what, what you would have got five million for four years ago you're getting one million for now okay Right, okay. So it's scary. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you, you've kind of... It's a challenging industry. Like, are there policies that you would like to see introduced that would enable filmmakers? Is, is there anything you would change? Uh, I don't know if I've ever been... I, if I'm like qualified enough to even yeah. think... You know what I mean? I, I, I've been lucky in the aspect that, like... Um, I guess I got support for them from the film board on on the summit based on the German, which was, you know, was a you know very well received as a film, and I think they wanted to. What they were really good at was supporting filmmakers they'd already supported as well, which is like you know, so the next step in Nick's career. I mean, obviously they probably thought maybe I was going to go straight into drama, which is what I want to do, and you know, uh, the problem with my drama love of drama is everything I want to do is probably so ridiculously expensive that like okay. it's almost I'm almost I'm always one film away from the film I want to make next <laughs> if that makes any sense okay. so in the meantime I have all these other commitments that I promised other people to do that I'm going to fulfill and hopefully uh, work on all, it's just a constant it's, it's, it's a you're working on so many fronts but the, to go back to the point the film board were you know they were support I, I guess if I remember rightly, in the beginning of the summit, because we didn't know what it was going to be ostensibly about, you kind of have a document going, oh, this is this terrible tragedy, and we want to tell this story, and how are we going to do it? They were supportive, and they'll, you know, there's always that unknown factor of, well, what is it going to turn out to be? And 
that's the very nature of documentary filmmaking, I think. Um, unless you're making a music film, or it's a, you know what I mean? There's something that you know doesn't really have necessarily have a mystery aspect to it. Uh, but they were supportive all the way through it, uh, as were RTE, uh, and they were, you know, I, so I, I was lucky in that aspect. I was really, really lucky in in, in in that we got to make a film. I mean, as as I went in, and not 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 to criticize the BBC for their decision, I'm I'm fine with the fact that they wanted something else. That's fine. That's their prerogative for their for their funding decision. Um, but it wasn't the film I wanted to make, if you know what I mean. I'm, it's a good film, the BBC version, but it's not. I don't think it's as good a film. And it wasn't a film that we set out to make that you know that that we all sat down and went, how are we going to do this, you know? Okay. And that's all in when you when 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 you when you do that, you know. Um, your biggest influences, film-wise, yeah. or <laughs> but that's the thing. I'm in, in, incredibly. Cr- I mean, I I grew up loving um, very popular cinema, like you know what I mean. Um, you know, as a kid, I think I was six or seven when I saw Star Wars changed my world like it like it did for a lot of people who were that age I guess you know you know it was the first film where I felt I wanted to live in that world and that's the thing you know what I mean okay. it, it, it's kind of you know what I mean you just you wanted to be somebody in that thing it's like it, when, when films can affect you or reach out to you in, the, in that respect up to that point I think you know you'd, you know you'd seen kids films or maybe or whatever you know the landscape was different what you saw on TV was generally six or ten years old you know what I mean it took that long for films to go from screen to like I remember James Bond films, the ones you'd have seen in 1976 were probably the ones from 1966, you know, like probably Goldfinger or something. Um, but, yeah, films, uh, very, 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 you know, and obviously when I went to art college, you started seeing a lot more, you know, foreign films and, uh, you know, Italian and French cinema and stuff. Uh, always been a big fan of, like, Wages of Fear, you know, um, the Yves Montand movie. It's, uh, you know, just great, great, great dramatic cinema. I've just always been interested in, 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 in stories in that aspect, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And I think, you know, the great storytellers, you know, I mean, it's the reason why The Godfather is such an issue. It's just, it's just a, a great story. It's, it's just so immersive. It's, I th- Films that are that are that 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 the place you dead center where you feel like that you've been taken into another world. Uh, I'm not even necessarily talking about fantasy, like in in Lord of the Rings or or you know films of that ilk so much. But a film like you can transport you to another time or place has uh, you know that's what has always fascinated me. And I think the thing as a, as as a director, I mean, probably what draws me as a director is if 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 you can. I think we live vicariously. Like the summit is a very good example. You know, we can hopefully, as an audience, when people looking at you, you can live vicariously through through the, you know the film that we made uh, on screen, and and it puts you. The whole point, Mark always said, we want to put you in the boots of the climbers. Mm-hmm. As sad as that is, given what it is, not to 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 to, to make it crass or to make it feel like a, an adventure movie um, or a thriller in that aspect, it is. The summit was very much like a horror story. At times, you want. To feel that you're there with them because it'll it it, it plays out to the emotions in, in in you and and hopefully it's not emotionally manipulative in any way. Uh, I think that's I th- how we understand the world in a way. It is, and that's the thing, and that and that's why I mean, you know, you know, you, we could have made that film with just staying on the person telling the story of how something unfolded, and it is gripping. I mean, I've watched the interview. I mean, I sat opposite, like like we are now talking to people. With my heart in my mouth and feeling, you know, holding back tears when they get to the points when the shit things happen on that mountain. And, um, but at the same time, you know, 
to, you know, we were pains to not be gratuitous with it. We never really show anything, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's that's the it's the what's implied is what's important. But we were very absolutely at pains to make sure that we didn't show anything that didn't happen. And I and I guess. So this should really come from somebody else saying it rather than me, but I know because just about every single person, including Marco, saw it um, only only two weeks ago in Italy, uh, and he even blogged afterwards that this is uh, exactly this is the truest event of what happened on that mountain. So unless something even more horrific happened on that mountain that they've all been complicit in keeping to themselves, um, I uh, Wilco. Everybody, Pemba, they've all said, no, this is, this is, this is it. And, you know, that's all you could ever set out to do and and to be faithful and truthful and accurate. And, you know, I remember being in Sundance and hearing, overhearing people talking about on the bus because nobody knows who you are there. It's great. And it's, uh, uh, you know, you're sitting there and kind of like, that's not, it's not a real documentary. It's, uh, it's got reconstructions in it. I mean, that's not real. So it's not, how's that? And you just go, and that's great. That's an opinion. Yeah, no, and it's totally valid. Yeah. You know, because that's what you want. You want to incite a reaction, good or bad. Um, the best and worst advice you've ever received? Oh, I don't know. I'm, I, you know, I've, well, first of all, I have a dreadful memory for most things. So, and that's what, um, best advice and worst advice. I really couldn't tell you. I don't know. No. I don't know. Nobody ever gives me advice. So, but just, I, I, or if they do, maybe I just don't listen. And maybe okay. the best advice is I should listen more. Um, so if <laughs> you were to advise your 20-year-old self? Yes, if you could go back. I, I probably would have maybe been... I, I probably would have knuckled down a little earlier. You know what I mean? Stop okay. kind of coast, coasting on, on everyone saying, hey, you're going to be great. You're going to be brilliant. You know what I mean? Because one day you wake up and you realise that, you know... It, you're not just you're not just going to be brilliant. You have to make yourself brilliant. <laughs> but I think that's a natural progression. I think we all wake up like at 26 and you're like, oh, okay. That's and much the, earlier than me. So <laughs> the coasting is necessary to get to that point. Um, well, no, there isn't. I think the thing is, there is a, da- a danger that you won't live a life beforehand. And I think the more you can get to see the world and the more life you can live, you've got more experiences to be able to bring to that world. You know what I mean? Um, and know. did you travel a lot? Yeah, I always traveled, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, uh, travel a lot in this film, actually. That's the thing as well. You know, 10 countries. more. We used to joke about it, say, more, more locations than a Bond movie. <laughs> you know? But uh, the... Uh, yeah, I always love traveling. I love going places. But you've got to be there with somebody that, you know, that you care about to share that experience, I think. You know what I mean? And, you know, kind of... And it's almost so you can kind of come back and you say, you know... Uh, Hey, we had a great time there, and it's you know, uh, just to see things. And, and uh, I haven't done, I didn't do the, I didn't do the interrailing thing, and I've never, I've never been in Asia, and I, want, I really want to go to Asia. I'm going to go there hopefully next year. Uh, never been in South America, so I've traveled a lot around the states, and uh, did a lot of road trips across the states in the center. It's when you, it's when you leave the, the two narrow bands of, of uh, yeah. east and west coast that you get to see the real America, which can be both heartwarming and, and frightening at the same time. Uh, I've just come back from New York, um, and like amazing, wonderful, magical place. Uh, but Fox News, it was horrifying. It's yeah. horrifying to think that this is. That's what's been. Sp- yeah, viewed and out that there, yeah. some people, this is their only news feed. You know. Um, That's the thing. It was interesting. I mean, um, when that MH17 happened, I was we'd switch between 
Sky, which I almost ban in the house because I think Sky is just Fox here anyway. But like, and CNN, and interesting as CNN, CNN's reporting of it was far superior to anything on Sky, uh, and that they just had the same thing on Sky on loop, same non non information. Whereas CNN had people looking and asking questions and and, and looking into possibly what happened here and that deal, and it was just and it was a lot more balanced. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's kind of slipped in recent years, CNN. But it was like for, I, I didn't I didn't go on to Fox because it is just I think it really is just an extension of the comedy channel, and it's 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 funny, but it's not funny because it's no, true, no. and that's the problem. Yeah, you yeah. Know? If it wasn't true, yeah. yeah. And then if it wasn't true, it wouldn't be funny. Yeah. Um. Do you see yourself? Is America more of a natural home for you in terms of filmmaking? Possibly, it's hard to say. I mean, a lot of the films I want to make, you think like the, the funding structures will be in place for it will be there. But uh, invariably, I'm drawn to stories of people in extreme. So whatever that's going to take you, you know, uh, you know, in the world to make those films, that's okay. fine. Um, ne- then- neither here nor there in terms of thing, but as a as a base. I mean, I, I, as much as Ireland can be difficult sometimes to live in, it's it's, it's home. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Like, it's stunning. Yeah. I was yeah. just back from West Cork, and like, yeah. Um, if money, place, people were no object, and you could make—is there a film, a subject matter that you would just love to do? Yes, <laughs> plenty actually. Yeah, and I've read a couple of books that you know what I mean. Uh, so some would say I'm drawn to difficult material, you know okay. what I mean, and that like you know it's challenging. But I think, well, what's the point of doing something that's not challenging, you know? And um, you know, I can't really, I, you know, I'm always reticent to discuss because you know, the this, here's the I, thing: like generally, when you're if you if you're reading something, you, you'll never be able to get to made it because somebody's got the options on it. I mean, there's a couple of things at the moment that I'm chasing. I'm just waiting for for them to come. Re, become reavailable, okay? Uh, because it's just one of those things where. Um, you know, there's no point even talking about that. But where, uh, you know, it's just a series of things. I, I just seem to be always find myself chasing material that is in, going to be inherently difficult for me to get or make. But you know, everything I've ever done, I always says, "Well, that's never going to happen." But I mean, that's almost like the that's almost a stick to beat me with to say, "Well, watch it, watch me make it." Happen. Okay, okay. <laughs> does that make any sense? No, it does. Um, Nick Ryan, thank you so much.